0: Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Gubin Yang to discuss the edited collection Engaging Social Media in China, Platforms, Publics, and Production. Thanks for tuning in. In China today, the party state increasingly penetrates commercial social media while aspiring to turn its own media agencies into platforms. Introducing the concept of state-sponsored platformization, engaging social media in China, edited by my guest Gu ben yang and Wei Wang, shows the complexity behind the central role the party state plays in shaping social media platforms. State-sponsored platformization, however, does not necessarily produce the Chinese Communist Party's desired outcomes. Citizens continue to appropriate social media for creative public engagement at the same time as more people are managing their online settings to reduce or refuse connection, inducing new forms of crafted resistance to hyper-social media connectivity. The wide-ranging essays presented in this volume explore the mobile radio service Himalaya.fm, Alibaba's evolution into a multi-platform ecosystem, the role of Twitter in Trump's North Korea diplomacy, user-generated content in the news media, social media art projects, and the reluctance to engage with WeChat, among many other concerns. Ultimately, readers will find that the 10 chapters in this volume contribute significant new research and insights to the fast-growing scholarship on social media in China, At a time when online communication is increasingly constrained by international struggles over political control and privacy issues. I'm excited to be joined today by Gubin Yang to discuss engaging social media in China. Yang is the Grace Lee Boggs Professor of Communication and Sociology at the Annenberg School for Communication and the Department of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. There, he directs the Center on Digital Culture and Society and serves as deputy director of the Center for the Study of Contemporary China. He's the author of The Red Guard Generation and Political Activism in China, and the award-winning book, The Power of the Internet in China, Citizen Activism Online. He is also the editor or co-editor of four other books, including Media Activism in the Digital Age and China's Contested Internet. Gobin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Kurt. I'm really excited to talk about your book because it introduces this interesting concept of platformization. Could you tell us a bit about what you mean by that term and how it describes the relationship between the Chinese government and social media entities?
1: Well, among the American media scholars, there's a lot of talk about the platformization of American society, which basically means that our society, not just our social media life, but our society, our economic life, you know, all aspects of our lives have become increasingly dominated by these major social media platforms. We think of Twitter or uh, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. So this is the idea of platformization, the process whereby social media platforms have come to dominate our lives. In the Chinese context, uh, uh, you know, which our book addresses, We try to explore the differences as well as similarities about the process of platformization. As we know, this is also happening in China. China has major internet firms, major social media platforms like uh, Weibo or WeChat, um, and therefore we also have this process of platformization in China. Main difference uh, though, is that the Chinese state uh, has a very important role in regulating, guiding, uh, managing internet development, including social media media platforms. So we wanted to take into account the role of the state in this process of um, uh, platformization. I guess, for lack of a better term, we came up with this uh, concept of state-sponsored platformization there could be other ways of saying this. You might say state endorsed or state supported, state regulated. There could be other options, but uh, we uh, we thought sponsored uh, at least it gives a sense of how important the government is in this process.
0: I wonder if you know for those listeners who are probably or or maybe less familiar with social media in China. I wonder if you could give us a sense of what the landscape is like. You know, we sometimes joke on the internet here in the U.S. that we took the internet and collapsed it down to three or four websites where everything is filtered through and distributed by. I assume that the same is happening in China. Could you give us a sense of what those platforms are and what they offer users?
1: Sure. I think uh, in a way, it's, uh, it's very similar to the social media platforms here in the U.S., in fact, the popular platform TikTok, right, is a Chinese uh, is uh, is a Chinese uh, platform with a Chinese version back in China, and user behavior is very similar. You know, China has a Weibo, which often is compared to Twitter. It's, uh, it's a kind of microblogging platform. But after it started to catch up in China, users uh, have different habits, uh, different uh, cultural habits, different traditions. So gradually uh, they take on their own um, peculiar features, interesting, you you know, peculiar features, although there are a lot of similarities. I would say China has a much bigger user base. Uh, Right now, the most recent survey shows that over 900 million uh, users in China can access the internet, and uh, almost all of them can also access the internet using mobile phones. So that's over 70% of the 1.4 billion population in China. So it's a huge user base. You can imagine with such a user base, all these social media platforms are busy uh, all the time. Like Twitter, we see Twitter updates right happening all the time, uh, trending topics and so on and so forth. Uh, similarly with Weibo and similarly with WeChat. Uh, WeChat is not just a regular social media platform, but it's being used for all kinds of things. You want a uh, fast food delivery, you order it on WeChat. During the pandemic period, during long- lockdown period, people do grocery shopping using WeChat. And scholars have called WeChat an application that is super sticky. That, you know, it's uh, for a lot of things and it
0: gathers a lot of people. And it gathers lots of data, too, right? Because it similarly to things that we see happening with Facebook of late, it's, as you say, it's not just a shopping platform, but it's also where people do their finances, where they conduct their work, where they do their socializing. All of these things sort of folded into one platform. And as you point out, on people's phones rather than on computers.
1: Definitely. That's another similarity, you might say, that uh, user data appropriated, monetized, you might say in all sorts of ways. So after a while, platforms would recommend products, they have their own advertisements, and uh, there are also uh, uses for for multiple purposes. That's part of the negative aspects of platformization is how these social media platforms turn our user data uh, into other things for political and commercial purposes.
0: You know, it seems like here in the States, I've kind of always gotten the impression that regulators were playing catch up with the platforms. Platforms would do something and then the government would try to find some way to tamp it down or to respond to it or to make it more difficult. I think that the Trump administration was pretty, or things during the Trump administration, this came to a head where we started really talking about what role Facebook might might not have played in the election, you know, hacking and those kinds of things all the way up to the attempt to ban TikTok from the U.S. altogether in those kind of saber-rattling discussions with China. Is it the same in China, or is the state's relationship more foundational to regulating what happens on social media there?
1: Well, I think there have been a lot of changes in terms of relationship between the state and social media and internet users and industry. I would say that for a long time in the uh, in the history of the internet development, the state uh, has been playing sa- same thing catch-up game. I think I would still say it's similar to with the U.S. in that the state still playing catch-up games in a lot of times because the the regulators bureaucrats who manage the technological in the, all these industries and. Well, they are a small group of people and the users, massive population of users, created tool. So the regulators have to play a catch-up game, particularly so in the early period of history, I, I would say. But in more recent years, there's been a lot of catch-up, uh, meaning that the, the regulators, government uh, agencies who are, for instance, Ministry of Information Technology, I don't recall the exact name of the ministry, but there are you know, government agencies in charge of technologies, telecommunications, propaganda, and so on, have been catching up fast, you know, and therefore um, also becoming proactive in how they deal with relationships with social media platforms and users. One of these um, proactive approaches, which are discussed in some of the chapters in our book, is that first of all, state media, government controlled media, uh, would uh, now very creatively use social media and digital media platforms to incorporate them into their own news making process, into their own content producing process. That's to be uh, more proactive in their process. But at the same time, state media agencies are also, there's a term that is used for this, also uh, quote unquote, the internet space in that not only media agencies are now opening uh, their accounts on social media, on Weibo or WeChat, but government agencies, a lot of government agencies are very actively also using these social media accounts. It's called occupation of the web in the sense that uh, because the government uh, or state-sponsored actors or institutions are more active in the digital sphere and therefore their voices are also louder and that's a way of countering the kind of more um, critical, you might say, critical voices uh, that often come from the ordinary users. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a great question. It's been a very sort of dynamic history, government playing catch up games, uh, And then internet users change their behavior and then more catch up and so on. But I think the broader trend is that um, if we focus on government and the social media platform relationship, I would say the government side is becoming more proactive, whereas in the earlier years, earlier decades, was more of a reactive approach.
0: One of the things that you point out one, in the introduction to the book is how popular those government accounts are. Once they do you know, get onto uh, the, the different platforms, they tend to draw a lot of followers and to be able to influence you know, discussion in some ways. Could you give us some examples of how Chinese government agencies are occupying different social media platforms in your paradigm? There are many examples,
1: but I, I would just want to say, first of all, that Uh, Yes, they are creating contents that are very popular. And they do so by learning the commercial practices of commercial social media platforms. So, in other words, the government media and government agencies are also incorporating the commercial logic of uh, social media platforms. What are some of the things that popular commercial platforms do? they would create a lot of content about the uh, you know, social, uh, everyday social social life, uh, issues of social concern, and using the language that is popular among the young people, among the internet users, using, in other words, using the internet language, which is a very different language from the language you find in the mainstream media which sometimes still has uh, a lot of the traces of the traditional, official, journalistic uh, language. So you have to adopt internet language using memes, creating memes, using videos, using live streaming. Uh, Live streaming has become so popular that the government agencies and government media are also very much invested in these. So in terms of the examples there are so many I, I it's, it's, let me see which uh, what, what will be the one that I can mention very quickly well let's say Bilibili which is a very popular live streaming uh, online video platform it's really a place young people uh, go for fun and entertainment but in the middle uh, last year I think there was a very popular video that was shown on it but then it, it sort of uh, got a lot of critical reaction. If I remember correctly, it was around the time of the youth day, China every year, May 4th, is the youth day of the nation. And uh, May 4th last year, Bilibili released a video in which a well-known celebrity actor basically gave a kind of a speech, basically advising, telling young people what are the things to do what are the things you you you, you don't want to do uh, giving advice to young people but produce in you know, a very popular you know very nice uh, imagery and so on it, it, it's actually you know it's it's pretty powerful but then people very quickly realize that what's the message the message again it's it's complicated it's a long article you know read in the by the actor I think if I remember correctly the me- one message is that you know uh well, young people, you are free. You have all the freedom. If you want to, you can travel the world and so on and so forth. And that kind of message, right? Freedom to travel, freedom to enjoy your life and so on. That's in the middle of the pandemic. Of course, that, there is a political message there. But then there are, there are people, uh, re- critical responses on social media would argue, well, not everybody uh, had that kind of you know, resources to travel freely wherever you want to travel, right? There is a lot of social inequality. A lot of young people don't even have uh, have jobs or are struggling just to try to make a living. And that the kind of freedom that you are promoting here, a nice life um, of, of free travel, that's uh, beyond the reach of many young people. So that I guess that would be one example.
0: There's another element to that example because it features in the introduction to the book where you argue that the government is Creating a new ideology around positive feeling, positive emotion, like an attempt to stamp out criticism and negativity in favor of promoting yearning and positive experiences and uplift and all of those kinds of things. Is that true of a lot of the government presence on social media?
1: Yeah, I would say so. And this is, uh, again, it's an interesting trend in recent years. And that's also uh, where I would say, part of the more proactive approach to the management of online space, which is this kind of language of positive energy comes from psychotherapy, you know. Uh, It's actually introduced from bestsellers from from the West, from the English language, translated into Chinese, and then became part of the popular culture because nowadays our contemporary life is so stressful, full of stress, Uh, young people are full of anxiety, all kinds of anxieties job, you know, marriage, too many to mention here. And uh, therefore, there is this kind of self-help, psychology, you know, social therapy that is, that is being promoted in popular culture. But then, this also being incorporated into official discourse, government discourse, to the extent that I would even argue that positive energy has become a kind of ideological discourse that the government often would invoke uh, positive energy to argue, "Why why are you complaining so much? Why are you criticizing the government? Why are you unhappy about everything? That's negative energy. What we need is positive energy. So in that sense, positive energy becomes a way of trying to suppress critical speeches online. Here is this you know I, I guess I, I, I would say the, the, these issues are interesting, fascinating but really important. Why, why does government and including government you know leaders using this kind of language of positive energy partly because uh, it's already a popular language um, among the young people. It's already you know so many self-help books uh, already in, uh, in the bookstores online and so on. So they realize that's a language that, that is helpful. But secondly, it also coincides very well, I think, with a concern among leaders of the party and the government, which is that for decades, for a long time, one of the main concerns of Chinese leaders is that you know, they don't want to see social conflicts. They don't want to see protests uh, in the street. Uh, they want to see a harmonious society. They don't want to see polarized society, conflict, and so on. So, invoking this kind of uh, language of positive energy, and sometimes also a language of civility, You've got to be civil in your know, behavior online, is also a way of trying to promote a kind of uh, official language, promote a harmonious society. It's, there's this this concern that society will go in, will become chaotic. That is really a long-time fear of the leaders. They don't want the society to become chaotic society, and so there is their law and order. There is the there is the censorship uh, institutions, and then there is this kind of language of uh, positive energy and civility. A whole bundle of institutions and practices in order to try to really reduce this kind of social potentials for social chaos.
0: You know, I find this attempt to control the cultural mood, you know, the kind of cultural feeling, really interesting. How does that facilitate China's domestic political projects? What's the interaction between that kind of attempt to inculcate a kind of sense of positivity, sort of happiness, a, a hopefulness? and the kinds of growth or development projects that are going on or other kinds of political agendas that the leaders might have?
1: In terms of political pro- projects, you know, a couple of things that uh, we could talk about. One top priority politically is to maintain the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, the government legitimacy in the eyes of the people, right? And this kind of discourse of positivity certainly is one way of promoting that kind of legitimacy. But political project is also very much related, to, as you mentioned, economic development, one of the main political goals, of course, is economic development to maintain, sustain the economic development of the nation. That also calls for, you know, again, in the language of official discourse, calls for a positive attitude what jobs you know you know for individuals that's for your own jobs but uh, nationally or in terms of collective vision that would mean that you sh- we should all try to contribute to that collective goal of uh, of national development um, or regional development I think uh, I guess I could also just go back to a platformization in the US let's say and all the social media kind of discourse in US, as you know, that the Silicon Valley has its own vocabularies, right? uh, Of sharing contents, participation. This is also kind of positivity that because uh, Silicon Valley want their own social media industries to develop to, they want to grow Twitter or they want to grow Facebook Of course they want you to participate they want you to update your status all the time so that they can monetize your data. That's why as long as far as I remember, Facebook still doesn't have a dislike button right It has it has like buttons so you can always like but they don't want you to dislike other people. So that's also kind of creating a kind of positivity as a way of promoting the business. So I I would say this is a similar kind of logic, uh, right? There is a commercial logic that can be used for political purposes as well. And we see this in the Chinese social media realm, in the political discourse. I think one of the things I, I want to emphasize is how politicians and bureaucrats have become so savvy in trying to introduce this kind of commercial practices and commercial language into political propaganda.
0: You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Gu Bin Yang, one of the two editors of Engaging Social Media in China, Platforms, publics, and Production. It's interesting, too, that one of the things you point out in the book is that there's a sort of blend of Chinese tradition along with that, so that it's both that language of positivity and commerce and growth and development. But also a way of, I think there's an example in the book using WeChat, where a particular holiday associated with giving you know little gifts in red envelopes has been emulated on WeChat so that there's a continuity of tradition with this new electronic media element.
1: Yeah, that's where I can talk a little bit about the creativity of Chinese social media firms and platforms. They keep coming up with little new tricks to attract the users especially in the early stages of developing and promoting their platforms or apps. They will come out with uh, interesting, fancy little tricks. And the appealing to traditional practices is, is, a, is, is, a, is a safe way of doing it. And the red envelope is a good example on WeChat. You know, WeChat, red envelope is still a very popular practice. During festivals in China, especially the Lunar New Year festival, the long tradition has been, you know, for parents to give children red envelopes of cash. Uh, it's a gift, but you know, you can also do so. Um, friends can exchange gifts and so on. So on WeChat, you can just easily send. A, a red envelope of gift, it's a little bit of money, just a very, you know, uh, some some change for kids. But it's a, it's a token of friendship. It, it's very popular. So when it was introduced relatively early on, during, a, a, you know, Lunar New Year season, it, it really gave, uh, brought a lot of buzz to WeChat. I think it helped to promote the popularity of WeChat. And so that's that's one example of such such little things. and uh, Weibo as well, uh, also using similar kind of little tricks. I would say that the point here is that uh, these social media platforms are creative in this way, See, you know, just s- with small the small affordances that can facilitate interaction, that can attract users. They are, for instance, uh, emojis is another example. They create a whole bundle of very cute emojis, WeChat and Weibo. And people, uh, when you are in so- you, you're you interacting with other, other people, sometimes typing Chinese characters is slower than typing English alphabet. You can just uh, enter a, you know, a, a little funny, humorous uh, emoji and that's efficient, but also it's a really nice way of socializing with other people. All these are just little examples of what, again, media communication scholars would call technological affordances, which encourage users to make use of these media platforms as much as possible. Spend as much time as possible on the social media platform. That's in the interest of these business firms as well.
0: I'd like to turn the conversation to thinking about the platforms are doing all of this to make themselves appealing to users so that they can aggregate more and more users and more and more data. Is there a way in which the Chinese government's involvement in platformization has unique consequences for Chinese users of social media that differ from those in the U.S.?
1: That's an important question. Of course, I, I think it uh, has clear consequences turning Chinese social media platforms into particular kind of spaces that are different from, uh, let's say, the social media platforms here in the US. One of uh, the clearest example, of course, is the presence of censorship on social media platforms. Here, when we talk about censorship, that's just another topic we can spend another hour on. But I want just want to very briefly mention that when it comes to social media censorship, it's not like government officials or bureaucrats who are directly involved in the censoring. It's a delegation of the censorship power to the social media platforms. So in other words, social media would have departments and um, personnel who are in charge of uh, monitoring and moderating the content. Actually, while well, here we have the language of content moderation, Facebook, for instance, have content moderation. That's the kind of content moderation. You know, in, except in China, the content moderation pays attention not only to, to all kinds of speech, but also to political speech. And it's being a growing industry itself, content moderation or censorship is a business. It's involving um, a lot of people uh, give jobs to people but the job is done by these companies and the job is done by human beings as well as you know machines AI and algorithms but I want to just remind our listeners that you know, there are still there's still a lot of human uh, labor involved in this process and whenever you think about human labor you would uh, you would uh, you know realize that well, Humans make mistakes, humans get tired, right? So, you know, I've been monitoring recently, writing about the social media scene during the pandemic. There often I would come across comments about, well, a particular posting on social media on WeChat has been censored, but another one is not censored, or another one took a while before it was censored. You know, maybe it took uh, one or two minutes before it was censored, but in that one or two minutes, that posting has already spread and became viral. Why did that happen? So the users, their comments like, well, you know, these people who are monitored online content, they are human beings. They could be sympathetic to some of these postings. And therefore, they would just wait a couple of minutes before removing them, giving them the space, to the time to spread which I guess I, w- I want to say makes this censorship a very uh, complex situation. That it's not like, uh, because there is censorship, uh, things just disappear and people can't say what they say. People are actually still saying what they are saying. Uh, even if they are censored, they will say it again, again and again, repeatedly, to the, uh, to the extent that eventually they still are able to say what they want to say. But the broader picture is that, well, this is a landscape that is heavily regulated by the government, uh, often by delegating the power to social media agencies, to social media platforms. And I will also add that this censorship or content moderation has become a huge business uh, involving uh, jobs and so on, uh, software development. It's a changing landscape as well. It's another kind of game where, you know, people are just playing catch-up on one hand, you know, the regulators, the censors playing catch-up games with the the users.
0: I also wonder about, you know, I've read a little bit about the idea of social credit in China as part of the way that social media is used there. Could you say a little bit about that? Uh, Social credit system was introduced a while ago, years ago.
1: It's a complicated uh, system, I I would say that there was, uh, for a time, it's attracted a lot of attention from Western scholars, but uh, I think, because it's, it's still, it's still an initiat- initiative that's in the works, right? So we, can, we, we don't know what real consequences uh, will have. Again, it's, there are many pieces to this thing. I think one of the core ideas is that, as you know, China, for a long time, until at least recent decades, China didn't have a credit card system. People didn't have credit cards. People never use credit cards, no credit card. So if you have no credit card, and then later on, credit card was introduced. Now it's introduced. Now it's quite common. But then, of course, these uh, credit card companies, uh, business companies, they'll be very interested in, in the credit of these users. They want people to have credit, right? If They want to lend money to them. So part of this credit The social credit system comes from that—that you want to have a credit system when you when you are lending money. So there is, uh, and then there is uh, this financial aspect is also tied to the social behavior. So that social behavior, in the sense, you know, there is as as we mentioned, we 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 talked about civil behavior. There is a lot of concern that people don't behave civilly publicly, especially. There's fighting, street fighting, quarreling, all kind of uh, you know uh, uncivil behavior, you might say. So there is this concern of uh, interest in using this system to um, monitor and encourage people to, to behave more uh, civilly. I think one of the examples that has been cited uh, in newspaper stories is that in China's fast train, passenger, occupied a seat to which he didn't have a ticket. he or she I forgot. Uh, but he refused to to give up the seat, uh, even though you know he didn't have the ticket to that seat is claimed by another person. And because of that, I think that um, uh, influenced his credit. Uh, he was banned from taking the train. and that's I guess that's an example of using social so how social credit, if you have a bad social credit, you could be disciplined in some way. So in other words, it's a system in the works, supposedly very comprehensive, but uh, we really don't know much uh, at this point about how it is working, whether it's working. But we do know that social media is being used for all kinds of purposes, which are related to the social credit system, but not necessarily part of the social credit system. I've talked with people from uh, uh, related to the WeChat to Tencent company, of the WeChat, you know, how, for instance, schools, teachers would uh, ask parents, uh, would build WeChat groups of parents of their uh, kids in their class, and then communicate with the parents all the time about kids' behavior. You know, you might you might think of that as a kind of close, you know, kind of surveillance of kids' behavior. They will be sending. Uh, grades, uh, their kids trade uh, grades to the to their parents uh, on WeChat and so on. It would definitely raise a lot of concerns about privacy issues privacy issues here. but um, that example I mentioned, the parents uh, wanted that system. They wanted to be in close communication with the teachers so that they, they can monitor behavior of the kids in school. So so it's it's a very widespread use of of the social media for all kinds of purposes, media, um, educational especially, uh, as well as consumer behavior. Could raise a lot of privacy issues, but uh, I think certainly Chinese uh, scholars, media scholars, uh, legal scholars are also concerned about some of these issues.
0: Well, it is interesting that you know as you say that these are often things that seem like desirable conveniences like it is nice to have all of my finances tucked into the same place that I do all of my grocery shopping because then it's all in one place and I can order my groceries and I don't have to worry about it but there's that sort of you know I think as the book demonstrates there's this sort of nexus where that kind of information you know gets platformatized as you say and then it's accessible for Government surveillance, different kinds of regulation, all kinds of other purposes than simply exchanging information with my child's teacher if it ends up stored in a database somewhere and then comes back to haunt you in, in five years or it gets leaked out, you know, somehow and says something about who you are or what you did. I want to pursue this line of questioning a little bit further in terms of how users are responding. Cause I think one aspect of the book that we haven't covered yet is the attempts of social media users in China to do something other than what's sponsored by the platform or what's encouraged by the state. How have folks been able to leverage these platforms for their own benefit or to resist you know, the desires of the party? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. That's really a whole another big story, uh, as big and more interesting than the other story uh, in a way. I would say the bottom line is that platformization, even though... The process, of course, is dominated by the platforms. And even though the government is penetrating the platforms and regulating it in very powerful ways, it's not really just a one-way process that is all um, from the top. But users can have very uh, significant influences on, on these platforms. And certainly the same kind of affordances of these platforms uh, that are supposedly designed to encourage particular kind of behavior, that is legitimate or acceptable, socially morally acceptable, can also be used uh, for many uh, other uh, purposes, for different purposes, including you know, <laughs> so for criminal activities. That's also a, a major concern. You know, there are there are so many things we can say about this other side of this uh, platformization. Let me, I uh, guess, focus on a couple of examples. One is, again, it's one of the main concerns of the government, uh, which is that um, you know, social media is a place for consumption, for entertainment. People just watch shows, buy things, and uh, it's all this entertainment and consumerism and so on. But actually, individual users also use them for civic engagement as well as for um, protest activities, civic engagement meaning that they can organize, they can organize all sorts of things. Let's say community volunteering, or they can organize very easily reading groups, film watching groups. These groups have proliferated on WeChat. It's just, it's so easy. You can easily set up group. It's called friends circles. Well, these groups, many of them just. Uh, Know, disappear uh, after a while, but a lot of them become, you know, stay there to become enduring kind of social relationships, communities, very tightly knit communities. And well, ordinary times they might be just reading books, uh, but when under special circumstances uh, they might turn into um, organizations, set, set, certainly informal organizations for organizing civil projects let's say, environmental protection, right? Uh, organizing a campaign for em- for environmental protection, recycling, organizing a protest activity. This could be done quite easily. But even without organizing, individual users now, like the hashtag activism here, right? On social media, on Twitter. People, a hashtag is also quite popular now on Weibo. People, individual users can post their stories, but then, uh, on a particular issue, but then using particular keywords, uh, hashtags, and these would aggregate into some sort of collective action. so uh, after a while you can you, you'll quickly see that uh, an issue becomes a kind of viral public issue and that's a, that's because of the aggregation of individual voices. This has always been happening. Um, and a couple of chapters in our book. Uh, continue to explore this aspect of the use of um, social media platforms. So this is one story, a major story, you know, is use of social media for civic engagement, uh, for criticism, even for protest, and individually or sometimes uh, in more organized forms. But uh, there's one article in the book which also sort of uh, signals uh, uh, another trend, which is that nowadays social media have penetrated the people's daily lives so excessively that uh, you know, on WeChat, for example, you are just seeing all kinds of uh, social uh, groups, friends, circles, and some of these mingle different people. You have your parents, and you have your colleagues in the same group, which can become very uncomfortable when you are talking about certain things. So, so media scholars call this a kind of context collapse, that are our context. Pre-social media, we interact with different people in different contexts, right? Now it's, it's the context is collapse. So we have different social groups collapse into the same space. That makes communication interaction extremely uncomfortable. And so, you know, savvy users now have become You have to manage very carefully how you communicate with people on social media. And uh, some people have tried to reduce uh, social media use. I think the platform itself has realized this issue. And uh, WeChat, I know, uh, has created new affordances where you can, if you post a message to a moment, you can select which friends you want this, you want to read this message and you can exclude others. So that's a, that's a very, uh, that's a meticulous, could be a time consuming process because people can easily have, have hundreds and thousands of friends. Then you have to selectively exclude some people and include others. But it, people would go to such length in order to carefully manage their communication behavior just because now it's become so, uh, so complicated, this entire uh, environment of social media. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then mobile phone, a lot of people go on, uh, use apps on, on, their, on their mobile phones and their smartphones. And smartphone is like 24 seven We we have to have our phone uh, within easy reach. Now there are all sorts of software for you to manage your time on, on the phone so that you just don't spend all your time on the phone when you should be doing your work or writing your papers. That's, that's actually, uh, I, was, I did uh, a paper on this last year, how you know, a lot of people are becoming more, more and more savvy about a lot of young people Instead, they are using software to help them manage how they use phones. So this is another trend, which, which is to say that such excessive pervasiveness or immersive you know, environment of social media has caused a lot of anxieties uh, in itself. To the extent that that users are beginning to try to be more careful in managing this, well, I could I could add another story here, and this became a quite uh, quite an issue. It became prominent during the pandemic, the lockdown period. You know, China instituted uh, a universal national use of house code. Right, if you enter, want to enter a public store, a grocery store, you have to show your 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 house code on your, on your phone. If you want to enter a gated community, a lot of the Chinese urban communities are gated. You have to show the health code. But you know a lot of the senior citizens are not very savvy using the smartphone using the smartphones or uh, the phones at all. And they certainly are not very good at using the house code, a kind of new thing. If you want to enter a public uh, space, a gated community, you have to show on your, on your iPhone that your, your health code shows that your testing result, COVID testing result is negative. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a QR, it's a, it's a, it's a little app but it's on every phone and it's almost required of everybody if you want to move around in public spaces. But a lot of senior citizens find it, uh, especially initially, it's not easy to use. So they have to learn this. So this became an issue. So uh, we're talking about here sort of a digital divide that this this pervasive social media culture and you know mobile phone culture. Not everybody is savvy. The senior citizens uh, tend to have to play catch up. So uh, you know uh, we see them complaining about the about these kind of difficulties all the time to their children. And uh, of course, among themselves, my parents are an example. You know, we keep in touch on WeChat by using the video function on WeChat. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time, but from time to time, they will have uh, some difficulty in handling the WeChat videos. You know, um, and you know, it's it's a long process of learning. They always it's it's just not uh, doesn't come naturally to them as it does to the to the young people. So uh, I think that's another challenge that they, uh, this rapid the development and upgrading of technologies always creates difficulties for, the, for a certain part of the population. And in this case, it's the senior citizens. So I think the anxieties are there. And that therefore, there is some, uh, some degree of resistance among some people against this kind of um, new media
0: culture. You were talking at the beginning of your response about the way that individual users have been able to mobilize via social media technologies, or that in the case of senior citizens, they've resisted, even if only because it's difficult to learn how to do it, but they've resisted maybe sharing certain aspects of their lives or conforming to these health codes that they're being asked to manage. Has the government platformization have they pushed back against that? Have they reacted to users' attempts to remove themselves or to repurpose these platforms for political purposes?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, the kind of, this kind of refusal to use, you might say, is a relatively uh, minor trend. I think the broad trend is that, uh, well, social media is here to stay, right? That's, uh, that's a condition of our life. Uh, like it or not you have to deal with it so that's the that's the major trend so I don't think the government is worried about about you not using it i think they are they are more worried about you using it uh, to you know to protest all the time to you know right um, to to be uh, challenging the government or that's what they are worried about like here i think there are there's also a kind of a minor trend of so-called social media minimalism uh, some people are advocating so as much as possible reduce your use of social media but uh, I don't see it uh, you know uh, growing I think the major change is there we can we we cannot deny that the reality is such that social media are powerful presence in our life in our everyday life political life economic life we will have to deal with it. We have to work with it. You cannot uh, just uh, turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, I think that's my take on this. I I, I don't, uh, as long as I, I, you know, as much as I can tell, I don't think government is is very much worried about that. I I guess the social media platforms are, of course, they are always worried about traffic, about losing users. They are always invested in building and growing their user base. That's uh, uh, they are probably more worried about this kind of refusal to use. That's why they keep keep coming up with uh, new tricks to lure users um, to stay on their platform.
0: I think that's probably a pretty good place to leave it, Guben. I, I've really gotten a lot out of this conversation it's been uh, super interesting to think about you know the ways that this phenomenon is happening you know all over the world and especially in china and i think that the book is a great place for readers to get a sense of the broad sort of reach of social media the different purposes that it's been put to and the way that chinese government has approached it you know differently than the us government i really can't thank you enough for joining me today Um, and for, you know, sharing your insights and your thoughts on the book.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Kurt. I'm also very grateful for this opportunity. I have to thank uh, the authors in the book and my co-editor, Dr. Wei Wang, because a lot of these ideas come from their work. They've really done uh, very careful uh, research on these, um, on these questions, uh, data analysis, and, um, it's just brilliant work. I'm so happy that uh, I can, uh, we can put, put all their uh, work together in this volume. Thank you very much again, Kurt.
0: The book is Engaging Social Media in China Platforms, Publix, and Production, and it's available at MSUpress.org and other fine booksellers. Gubin is on Twitter at Yang G U O B I N. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. The Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.